After dominating the first two games of the season, the Nets have come back down to earth, dropping two straight nail biters. We break down the first four games for Brooklyn, marvel at KD and Kyrie, and talk about who could fill Spencer Dinwiddie's shoes as the post-Brian Lewis stops by. We also chat with one of the best young broadcasters in sports, and my friend, it's Nets NBA and WNBA play-by-play announcer, Ryan Rucco. All that plus carries chronicles and more next on a Happy New Year edition of Full Court on Flatbush from the New York Post. The next stop is Barclays Center. Full Court on Flatbush. Flatbush Avenue. It's the podcast. A New York Post. BK. Most stars in the sky. The three. Welcome to Full Court on Flatbush. I'm your host, Robin Lundberg, alongside my co-host, former Nets great Kerry Kittles, by the way, the awesome intro song you just heard is from Constantine Maroulis. Yep, the guy from American Idol, who's also a Brooklyn native originally and is producer Static. So shout out to them for the theme song you hear at the beginning of each and every podcast. Subscribe to Full Court on Flatbush on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Write a nice review, please, on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Kerry underscore Kittles 30 and at Robin Lundberg. New episodes of the show come out Wednesday afternoons. Yes Network and ESPN play-by-play broadcaster Ryan Rucco and Nets beat writer for The Post, Brian Lewis, will join us later in the show. But, Kerry, first thing I had to say is nobody told me I'd have to do back-to-back shows. I thought I'd get to sit out uh, (laughs) back-to-backs. Nothing wrong with back-to-back shows. You know, we like a little bit of work going on today. You know, KD and Kyrie, of course, it's a reference to them sitting out the you know the second half of a, yeah, a, a yeah, back-to-back. Yeah. I'm interested in your thoughts on that because I imagine you're from the playing days of, of when, 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 in my day, when we played, there were, there were Rottweilers on the court or whatever, you know, people <laughs> say. Yeah, you're right. That is, it's interesting. You know, I'm like, both of these superstars are sitting out because it's just back-to-back games. And, you know, you're traveling from uh, from Charlotte and you're coming back home to Brooklyn. You're expecting these guys to play. And and uh, you have this uh, this rest day that's thrown in there. I, you know, I just think that that's where the NBA has gone. This load management analytics has, has definitely impacted uh, every team in the league. I remember when the Spurs were doing it years ago, everyone had their eyebrows up saying, you know, what's going on with that? You know, it's the way the game has gone. It's the very fast game, much faster game than when I played. So I think you have to be smart and rest these guys. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit last week, but I think there's more of a toll on the legs because of the square footage of the, the court that, that's getting covered. But as a famous Brooklynite once said, it, it was all good just a week ago when we were totally hyped uh, about the the, uh, the Nets. Excuse me, that's a heck of a Freudian slip. Both <laughs> the Knicks and the Nets are 2-2 two and two yeah. on the season thus far after the Nets have lost two in a row. And I want to get to that in just a second. But uh, first, uh, I did see a, a Reddit thread right before the show where someone was campaigning for you to have your uh, jersey retired by the Nets. So, uh, first of all, I just have to make sure that wasn't you pulling a KD burner situation. No, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. But uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate the gesture. I, I think it was, uh, you know, to, I think any basketball player will, will honestly tell you that. I had my jersey retired at Villanova a couple of years after I entered the NBA. And I, I think 
Um, whenever you see your jersey retired in the Raptors in high school, college, or pro, it's uh, it would be quite an honor for me. I mean, is that something you think you deserve? Uh, seriously? I mean, I don't know. I, I played there for eight years. My, my my first eight years in the NBA. I I, I don't hold a lot of records there. I, you know, I was on two uh, Finals NBA teams, so I wouldn't say that I was like the uh, bona fide individual superstar that played there. But I was, you know, a, a good player. I, I impacted the game, and I, you know, the fans can relate to me. Yeah, well, you know, I know. To be honest, when when I was told uh, you'd be doing the, the podcast, I, I thought you're synonymous with the Nets. Right, like that—that's the the first um, uh, Villanova. Obviously, what you did there, but your NBA career—I think you played your entire career, other than a, a little bit of time with the Clippers, with, with the the Nets, and that's the first image that pops into my head is you in a Nets jersey, and that's not necessarily the case with, with players, uh, you know, in your class who are very good NBA players, but sometimes they'll bounce around, and you think of them in different places. I think of you as a member of the Nets. That's that's great, and and like I said before, it's it's an honor to have started my career with the Nets, playing eight years. I was there, uh, back in the dungeons over in uh, in the Meadowlands, and and um, you know we had some some pretty challenging seasons there. But then uh, once Jason Kidd came over, and you know you draft Kenyon Martin and Richard Jefferson, off comes success, and um, you know I was a big part of that, and and um, you know and I, I'm still always stayed involved with the organization. I've been around um, the Barclays Center and interacted with fans and sponsors and things like that. So I, I think that that's uh, why people will uh, mention me you know, being honored. Kerry, based on the show last week, Kenyon Martin's comments, I'm, uh, I want to know what you think about what he said. Did Bruce Ratner ruin the Nets' chances of winning a title? Is Bruce Ratner why the New Jersey Nets don't have a championship? That's a very strong statement by Kenyon, and I, and I appreciate that, you know, having been a part of, you know, a player that got transferred and moved out uh, after we went to the finals again. And so I understand why he feels that way. And I, I think that um, we were missing a couple pieces on that team and we were trying to to fill those voids. And, and I thought that, you know, we were really coming into our own. I think the league as a whole was adjusting to our unique style of play. One more season, I thought would have been a, a, a righteous thing to do to bring Kenyon back, bring myself back for one more season. But we both understand the business side that, you know, what happens when guys are in the last year of their contracts or Guys like Kenyon Martin are looking to get big new deals. You know, if your jersey is retired, do you want it to be the Basquiat uh, edition? That's a nice edition. <laughs> I, I like that. Although the uh, the Jason Petrovich colors are just, I mean, to die for. I mean, that, that is to die for. The Nets have the illest memorabilia and, and paraphernalia or whatever in the league. I mean, those Basquiat things, they're playing Basquiat ball now. Let's get to the, the current team. Uh, and, and of course, the, the big news this week is what happened with Spencer Dinwiddie, which is obviously uh, a bummer for him. Um, I, th- I think he was going to have an adjustment in, in his role because he was so used to the ball in his hands. And the role he was playing is the kind that a role player can step into. Uh, who do you think is going to have to step up the most? Who do you think might be the the, the fifth starter? Or who would you make the, the fifth starter for this team? Yeah, I think the fifth starter is definitely Karis LeVert. I, I think he he's earned it in, in his play and his, his tenure with the Nets. He's he's proven to be a guy that can score with the ball in his hands and, and running ball screens and, and doing it on his own and also playing off the ball and feeding off of Kyrie and KD's attention. So... I think you move him into the lineup. Obviously, you're going to give a lot more minutes to TLC, right? I mean, he's been the talk of the preseason. He's been the talk of the first few games thus far. And and you look at what he did in the first half, the last game against Memphis, you, you can really see why he is definitely a guy that's deserving of more time. Yeah, see, I disagree. I, I think Karis LeVert is obviously, he and Joe Harris, to me, are the third and fourth best players on the team. But I like the role that they've carved out for him. And they need that scoring off the bench, especially if, 
Katie and Kyrie are going to do everything together, sit out together, go to the bench together, all, all that stuff. So you, you put the ball in Levert's hands, and, and I think they might need a more complimentary player in, in that starting lineup. So uh, TLC is, is who I'd give the first crack to. Uh, obviously, you got Shamit. Bruce Brown hasn't played yet. By the way, can you can you say the? Are you comfortable with TLC's full name yet? Are you mm. there? T- Timote Cabarro. Because to me, he has that complimentary sort of game where uh, he has to stop making these ill-advised cross-court passes. They got stolen in, in the second half against the Grizzlies. But as a spot-up shooter, as a guy who runs the floor, as a guy who defends, you don't think that that could be a better fit alongside KD and Kyrie and, and let Karras do his thing coming off the bench? You you can go either way with it, right? I mean, we saw the Spurs have a lot of success with that for many, many years, bringing Ginobili off the bench, right? A, a guy who definitely should, could have been starting on any team in the NBA, right? And But I, I think at the end of the day, the Nets are going to have to find out who are going to close games for them. And I think both of those guys will be in the lineup. I think you will see TLC and you will see Levert out there with those other guys in the closing moments of, of of tight ball games. I agree. He definitely compliments those guys as well. He's a guy that really plays off the ball. He's a phenomenal slasher and he converts really well in traffic around the basket. I'm very impressed by this young guy's, uh, his potential. I, 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 I have to honestly say that I was really upset when they got rid of Garrett Temple. I thought he really played well for them last year in, in stretches, but TLC has, I mean, he has really opened up my eyes. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's easier to fit in. We, we've talked about that a lot of, with, with Kevin Durant and, and, and Kyrie, and you have a couple of losses. They sit out one, you maybe a bit of a trap game. I, I noticed a lot of teams played really poorly. The ones that, that won on Christmas day in, that next game but uh, how, how much um are you still feeling the first two games of the season and, and how much are, are you you know down on the the last two games of the season where are you like the temperature check i mean it's so early in the season i was really impressed with what i saw in those first two games i mean the way those two superstars played i mean can you see anybody in the east slowing them down i mean maybe maybe milwaukee but i just think when K- Kyrie and katie are playing at such a high level like that they're going to be a tough out for anyone in the east you know the last game against memphis you know you're taking out you know possibly 50 to 65 points without Kyrie, kd and, and spencer you're, da- you're bound to have a pretty tight ball game which we saw and we saw those guys really competing in that game unlike the game at charlotte where it was a little bit of a letdown game you know it's, they're just so explosive scoring we, we've talked a little bit about and, and i know you're going to share a story coming up in Carrie's Chronicles about guarding one of the greatest players of all time. But if you were still in your playing days and, and you, you know, were, were matched up with, with one of those guys, who would you think would more possibly or more likely, uh, you know, be putting you on a highlight film or, or embarrassing you? Who, who would you fear guarding more? Durant or Kyrie? It's easily Kyrie for, for me. I, I, I think Kyrie is, as, as, as I said last week, I, I've never seen the moves that he can do with the ball. The, I mean, he's making dribble moves against Rozier and Charlotte where they're just like, he. yeah, he would definitely have me on highlight reels and I would be yelling, switch, switch, switch <laughs> every time it's the ball screen. I mean, it's, it's amazing what the guy, he's so skilled and gifted. Now, Kevin Durant hits those shots that that nobody else can really do because of his size and and his length and and everything like that with with Kyrie in in that secondary role does that just help him so much I mean what is the difference there why is why is he able to play so well like that when when there's another guy versus when he's been tasked with carrying a a team why why would that not work out um the same for him I think people really underestimate the the amount of pressure that Kevin Durant releases on, on the entire team I mean 
you know, you run one ball screen and you switch. Right now you have a big it's like a seven-footer trying to guard him. He's really a guard, even though he's 6'11". And if you switch to the smaller guy on him, you have to double-team him because those mid-range pull-ups are just cash. You know, he makes them in his sleep. So he releases a lot of pressure on, on off Kyrie, and, and Kyrie is now able to relax and just be, be himself, which is a very dynamic score. It's fun to watch. Do you catch yourself, like, making uncontrollable noises when you watch those guys? They're just stuff that happens. Of, ah! When you, when you see them make some moves out there on the court. But we, we talked about you guarding an all-time great player. Kerry's going to share one of those stories coming up next in Kerry's Chronicles. It's time for Kerry's Chronicles, where Kerry Kittles shares a story from his playing days. And, you know, we're about to say good riddance to 2020. Thank goodness. Yes. Goodbye. Yes. Peace out. Later. Yeah. Um, uh, but when 2020 started and before the pandemic, one of the things that let you know it was going to be a, a terrible year is, is we lost the, the late, great Kobe Bryant. And, and we've spent a lot of time appreciating his, his career since then. You went head-to-head with Kobe. We just talked about you know the possibility, the hypothetical of guarding Katie or, or Kyrie. You literally did check Kobe. What was that like, and what were the, the particular challenges that he presented? Yes, uh, 2020 has been a, a, a very difficult year, and losing Kobe Bryant has been uh, – such a travesty for for all NBA fans and even former players like myself. I first met Kobe when he was in high school. I was in college and I played against him back in the Philadelphia area. And right from the start, I could tell that he was a phenomenal talent. I mean, I thought he was ready to play in, in college right away when he was 16 years old when I first met him, if not in the NBA. He was just that good. And then watching his development in the NBA early on, I could tell that he was really on his way for stardom. And one of my favorite stories of playing against and competing against Kobe was my actually my last year in the NBA. And I was playing for the Clippers and Mike Dunleavy was our coach. And um, we're, we're playing the Lakers at home in L.A. And Mike Dunleavy was our coach. And I had the task of guarding Kobe that game. And, and heading into the game, Kobe had an amazing hot streak going. I think he was, you know, the last nine or ten games, he's well over 40 points. And um, and that's back in the day when you were doubling, double teaming superstars. <laughs> Mike Dunleavy goes to me before the game. He goes, you got Kobe head up tonight. I'm like, uh, I'm like, all right, fine. I'll play him head up. No big deal. And uh, so the first possession Kobe catches the ball. And of course, you know, he was so hot. He's just waiting for the double team. And then he passes the ball out to, I don't know what guard he had, point guard. And he's like, do you not double me tonight? And um, I was like, no, you got me, you know, head up tonight, one-on-one. And he goes, oh, dude, that's going to be a long night for you. And I'm like, yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, it was a fun, competitive game. I think, of course, he got, you know, 38 points or whatever it was. And, and back then it was really fun because there wasn't a lot of switching. So, you know, that night on any matchup, you had to guard that guy. And if you, did, if you didn't guard him, coach would just pull you out the game. So out of those 38 points or whatever he scored, I got a pretty good taste of, of uh, Kobe Bryant's brilliance. But, man, what a talented player. Uh, what, a, what a tenacious uh, competitor he was. And um, he was fun to play against. He, I admired him as a player. And, um, man, we're going to miss him. You know, it's, it's fun to hear those stories uh, of your playing days, especially against someone like Kobe Bryant. We'll take it back to the present coming up next with a play-by-play announcer for ESPN and the Nets on Yes. That's Ryan Rucco. 
We now welcome into full court on Flatbush, a good friend of mine. He broadcasts Nets games on the Yes Network, also NBA games on ESPN, and hosts R2C2 with CC Sabathia for the ringer. It's Ryan Rucco. Now, Ryan, you know, I want to focus on the, the Nets at first because this is a, a Nets podcast. And doing the games on Yes over the years, I know you, you really like doing them. You really enjoyed them. But even with the lack of fans this year how much different has the energy been uh, around the team is that something you can feel yeah you know what man it is like I can even feel it just in our energy for the broadcast because of course you know we miss not having the fans there and you know we miss the culture of the road and the way you end up feeling like a part of the team when you're on the road, right? There, there's an energy knowing that we have more eyeballs than ever before, um, that the games matter more than ever before, and that you're, you have, you know, you have two stars who welcome in an audience beyond just Nets fans. You know, when you think about Kyrie and KD, you are having people who are just basketball fans now who want to watch them play. And we all feed off that. And I think also, you know, we've always taken pride in uh, the broadcast we do. But, yeah, you know, I mean, I think there were years where we kind of lamented the fact that it's like, oh, we feel great about our broadcast, whatever, and the team didn't have much, you know, going on. And then it was like kind of low audiences. And now knowing that you have these stars and you have big audiences is pretty exciting. You know, you mentioned the the, the big audience. Uh, I saw Yes tweet out about the ratings the other day. We know that the Nets have all these nationally televised games, but they directly compared it to the, the Knicks and the broadcast, I think it was from Sunday when they were both on the, the regional networks, MSG and and, and Yes. Um, obviously, you know, certain people within fan bases pay attention to that. But is that even surprising to you to see just the, the level of interest right away? Yeah, a little bit, man. Just because, like, historically, I don't know, you know how much people know this or not, but historically, the Knicks ratings are significantly higher than Nets ratings. Like, I mean, significantly higher. So to come out of the gate like that and to, you know, win that ratings battle, especially in a game where, you know, the Nets are playing Charlotte and the Knicks are playing Milwaukee. And obviously Milwaukee is the much more attractive opponent than Charlotte. And even if you actually like dug into it even deeper, the uh, halftime of the Nets game and then after the Nets game ended was when the Knicks did their biggest rating and received a big boost. And, and even still, including that, you know, the, our ratings on yes were higher for that game. So I thought that was a really encouraging sign. And I think also just a window into the appetite that people have in this city for stars and winning basketball. I mean, Robin, you've talked about forever, you know, this being a basketball city and they have not had a product to match their interests. And I think this showed just as an entry point of what the potential is, you know, when you have stars in this city for, you know, fans that have been just dying to see a high quality of basketball. How you doing, Ryan? This is Kerry Kittles here. What's up, Kerry? All my all my broadcast mates all love you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're speaking about uh, entry point you mentioned there, uh, starting the season off. And I know it's kind of early in the next season, but I just wanted to ask you your impressions of the team, uh, in particular, just Kyrie and KD's camaraderie together as teammates, new teammates uh, on, on the court. And obviously, uh, the, with the addition of Steve Nash uh, leading the helm at the head coach position. You know, the number one thing that stood out to me thus far speaking of their camaraderie, Kyrie and KD, is how I think it has, it's imbued this unselfish nature of playing to everybody, right? You know, I think that KD helps Kyrie in the sense of he has someone else who he 
trust just as much as himself, right, to make the big shot and to rely on on the offensive end. And then I think that sort of unselfish relationship between them spreads to the rest of the guys on the floor, too, and it, it becomes contagious, right? Like we saw in game one, KD telling Joe Harris, like, you don't pass up that shot. Like, you take that shot if you have that shot. Obviously, we all know Joe's one of the best shooters on the planet. He has an open shot. He should take it. But, you know, there, it can be a little intimidating for guys sometimes when they're playing with, you know, a, a Kyrie and a KD and to feel confidence taking their shots. And I think, you know, they have both been so unselfish that I think that's going to be a big thing for the rest of the guys to have confidence, you know, to play their games, to be themselves, to shoot when they should shoot. So that's been the thing that stood out most to me. There haven't been a lot of times where I've been like, ooh, that was a bad shot, you know. Um, I think uh, with Steve Nash, the thing that I've heard most from talking to guys on the team is, you know, they've just been really impressed with, one, how smart Steve is, how prepared he is for any question that's asked, how collaborative he is, you know, across the board, there's been praise for not just Steve, but the depth of his coaching staff. Uh, but then more so, and Kerry, this is something I'm sure, you know, you experience different, um, you know, different doses of this with different coaches. But it, it's been really interesting to hear the players say that with Steve, there's no fluff. You know, there's not this need to rah-rah. There's a, hey, we want to win a championship. If we want to win a championship, this is what we have to do. This is what we have to execute. And this is what we're going to do today. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to get this done. And that's going to help us on our way. Boom. And not a need for fluff. So those have been some of my early impressions thus far. Great points you make there. And I, I think you're right. Steve Nash uh, is a former player. He That's how he played the game. Very relaxed uh, demeanor. Uh, never high. Never too high. Never too low. And I think that's going to um, bleed over into his coaching career with, with, the, with the Nets. Um, but what are, what are your thoughts? You know, obviously it's uh, with, with, with Dinwiddie going down and with the other role players now having to step up into different roles. How do you see those guys complimenting KD and Kyrie um, and, and learning when to pick and choose to be aggressive and when to just kind of play off those guys and, and all of the attention that they're going to draw from their opponents? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think that, first of all, I feel awful for Spencer because I know how hard Spencer works, and he has been one of the foundational pieces of this Brooklyn Nets rebirth. And if it wasn't for his development and the work he put in and being one of the faces of the culture shift, the Nets would have never been attractive enough to someone like Kyrie or someone like KD. And I think his fit, and Robin and I have texted about this during games, I think Spencer's fit was going to take a little longer to figure out around everybody. Um, but the great thing about Spencer with, you know, being able to fit right away would have been him on the defensive end, his switchability, his versatility, um, and his length. On uh, the offensive end, there was the insurance policy of if Kyrie goes down, we know Spencer Dinwiddie can control things, and we've seen him do it. I mean, this is a guy who averaged just under 21 points per game last year. Um, and, you know, we also know he has uh, an uncanny ability to get to the rim and to finish. So those are things that they're going to miss, and I don't think they're necessarily – duplicated right away by anyone who would be stepping up. I do think that some of the other players who might take some of Spencer's minutes might more naturally fit in around Kyrie and KD. Like if TLC, Timothee Luau Cabarro is at his best, like what we saw in the fourth quarter against Charlotte in the game the Nets lost, you know, he might be an even better fit with that unit, or at least a fit that allows you to stomach the blow of the loss of Spencer and still keep the train moving, even though Spencer is the better player. I think, you know, TLC is a good enough fit, 
that you might be able to absorb the blow. I think with some of the other role players, you know, I believe Chris Chioza has a place in the NBA. You know, we've seen him play good minutes, so I think he can have minutes at the point with the second unit. We've seen Paris have success when the ball is in his hands, and he was going to be in that role anyway, right? The guy I'm curious about is Torian Prince. You know, can Torian Prince find a role with this team and do this? Can he just run? Can he hit open threes? And can he not try and do too much? And can he defend? And can he fit in with these guys? Yeah, Torian Prince looks like a player who should be good, but just kind of isn't. That's my impression and takeaway. Uh, watching him over the, the last year and a half or whatever it's been uh, since he's been in Brooklyn. But, Ryan, you mentioned chemistry and fitting in. You have to do that as a, a broadcaster as well, you know, doing games for ESPN, doing games for Yes. Uh, yourself and I did a, a radio show for ESPN in, in New York, Ruko and Lundberg, for a little while. It was successful. We were sort of collateral damage. Stephen A. Smith came in. You did a show with Stephen, who's obviously awesome at what he does. And, and now you, you do a podcast with CC Sabathia. Can you tell me why you like working with CC more than you liked working with me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, man. I, I loved working with you. You were the, the gold standard bar that everybody set. So CC can only tie it. Love work, CC. He, he tied it. That's all he can do. That's all he can do. He, you can only tie. But what's funny is, and Kerry, uh, I'm sure you're getting a little taste of this, and, and, and Jake Brown, your producer, will get a, a taste of this. But Robin is the single most creative person I've worked with in this business. And so much of you know what I, I, I do and have done in my career since are things that I learned from Robin. So even like, you know, with CC now on our podcast, we do this thing, Slinging Heat. Uh, in the beginning of the podcast so that our podcast is not always, uh, you know, guest dependent and uh, where CC will come up with three takes. And even some of the ways I try and come up with hooks or angles are things I learned from Robin. But CC, I will say what I love about him, first of all, he's just ridiculously authentic. He's so comfortable with being who he is. Uh, and, you know, I think that really was a product. And I don't know if you, if you guys have seen his doc yet that just came out on HBO, but that was a real product of him uh, dealing with his alcoholism and going to rehab and, and getting, you know, just more comfortable in his own skin. And he's just so authentic. Then he has the credentials where people are so comfortable with him. Um, and then he also has the same nerd interest that I have that I know you have too, Robin, where, you know, CeCe loves everything Star Wars. He loves everything Harry Potter. He loves everything Marvel. And so we bond over those things. And, and the thing that I think I love most is like CeCe is my greatest champion when, you know, if somebody asks like, oh, why do you look do it like this? doing this and he's like oh man you know ryan does all the hard work which i don't think is necessarily true but he always says that and that like respect factor he always gives me it makes it a really fun partnership so it's funny though robin i was thinking i was like damn I, he's now my longest tenured co-host like i cc and i have been doing this for three and a half years so he passed he passed rothenberg he passed Stephen a and now he's passed you too so my longest tenured partner is cc as far as uh podcasts or, or, or radio shows go when it comes to that nerd stuff you know i got that that marvel game on lock but one, one thing i've always admired about you ryan even when we work together and, and people ask me this question all the time because they, they know that we used to work together is is how you got so fast-tracked and, and and how you you got to where you are at, at you know a relatively young age and, and one of the things i pointed out is you always wanted to do this you know like um, it, it, sometimes you, you, you try and do various things in the, in the business. And I remember one time we had a talk about it and I, and I, I told you, you know, like you've told me since day one, you wanted to be a play-by-play -play announcer. And, and how much do you think that, that sharpened focus helped you get to where you are? I think that meant a ton because it's funny. I, my, my wife always says this, like, you have a career that was always your dream. 
and and it's just like it's it's the most amazing thing to be able to actually do that like that to do that and i'm like yeah and we both always say the mo- more amazing part of it is probably even knowing it right like it's one thing to be able to get to do your dream job but it's like it takes this initial stimuli of just knowing what that is and i've always known and so it made it so much easier for me to know what i wanted to do i didn't have to like meander into it or sort of listen to life's whispers and eventually get blown towards it i have always known and it's made it easier for me to just like put my head down and grind so that when i was in college at fordham you know i would spend hours on end at my radio station wfuv and be listening to my demo tapes with my mentor bob Aarons, who was the executive producer there and you know try and get you know every angle of my play-by-play right because I knew that's what I wanted to do it wasn't just me dipping my toe in the pool and that did accelerate the learning curve and you know I, I the conversation I think you were just referencing Robin I'm always grateful for and I reference a lot because I've always had this sort of you know momentum and energy and focus and work at, uh, you know ethic moving forward wanting to be a great play-by-play guy and you know that feeling of moving forward moving forward and I got to a point in my ESPN radio hosting career where it felt like I was holding on and my play-by-play career was simultaneously starting to really grow and we were hosting some fantasy event and it was after we had you know not been hosting shows anymore I've been hosting with Stephen A then but that was about to end and you and I were hosting some fantasy event I think at Yonkers Raceway and I had like had to decide what I wanted to do if I wanted to host the show at a different time or whatever and you were kind of like man like you know why are you holding on to this what you actually want to be doing is booming right now. Just like lean into that, whatever your words were. You having the knowing me, but slightly removed you and it being so obvious to you what I should do really resonated with me and snipping the cord for hosting those daily shows was the best thing I ever did for my play-by-play career. It's the best thing I did for my voice and my vocal health. It was the best thing I did for those opportunities. And gratefully, the careers continue to grow from that. So I'm always thankful for that conversation that we had, Robin. Hey, Ryan, Jake here. Your story is pretty fascinating to me. And to be hosting in your 20s in New York City and then to be doing it with Stephen A. You talk about doing a show with Robin Lundberg. Doing a show with Stephen A. Smith in your 20s is another animal. Can you take us behind the scenes with the one and only Stephen A? Was it ever intimidating? Yeah, you know what? I, I think, first of all, Stephen and Robin knows this as well from working, you know, at, at ESPN New York. Stephen's a great dude. You know, he's a, he's a really good guy. He was an incredible team player to me. Like, he would honestly, like, he would feed a lot of the creative throne to me and our producer, John Winthrop. Um, and so he was he was someone and and I also I, I give him a lot of credit as well for putting my name in boss's ears at ESPN when it came to my play by play. Once he got to know me and like me from hosting, he would also be like, Hey, you guys you got pay more attention to Ryan's play by play, whatever, ESPN bosses and so that helped me grow there. But like the funny thing is is like Stephen like he has his odd particular things, like, you know, when he would order a sandwich, it's like, Hey, make John, John, make sure they put the mayo on both sides of the bread. Please make sure the mayo's on both sides of the bread. Like, you know, I don't like it if there's only one. Like, he has his, like, fun, innocent quirks like that, but he doesn't strong arm. You know, he doesn't, you know, Stephen A is, you know, the biggest star at the biggest sports network, you know, on the planet, right? And he doesn't swing that stick often. Like, he really doesn't. He was a really good teammate. The biggest challenges that we had hosting were we were always in two different locations, which, 
you know, now we've all come to get used to in the you know, COVID world. But at the time, you know, was very unorthodox. And you also didn't have the video component. So we were always hosting a show without looking at each other. Um, and it made it challenging to do the show because, you know, it, you just you don't have that same flow or chemistry. And then honestly, you know, Steven's style is one of where he's going to, you know, have like a four or five minute riff. And then you're trying to dive in. And so if you're not in the same location, it made it particularly difficult to have flow. But I still enjoyed doing it. We still had audience members who really liked it. And as a guy, you know, he still has been like a big brother to me in the aftermath of hosting. And I just, I couldn't say enough good things about season A to do. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, Ryan, the the different times now where we, we are on Zoom. It feels like, it feels like life is one giant Zoom meeting. But um, when the, the pandemic came around, what were the, what are still the unique challenges of doing broadcasts either remotely or or an empty arena or is that something you just got used to very quickly? You know, when what's interesting is when you have a monitor right in front of your face, right? So let's say like it's a net road game, we go to Brooklyn, and when you have a monitor right in front of your face, same thing like when I was doing the WNBA games from Bristol, uh, what I'm going to be doing for the women's college games from Bristol, like you get lost in the action pretty good and our directors and our cameramen and women are doing a great job I think of cutting the game so that you're not seeing the empty seats often so it's not that hard to just get lost in the action uh, and to just call it you know with the same vigor and passion it's a little bit different I'd say when you're like getting ready for the game and you're in an empty arena you don't feel this like energy like that you normally do even I was noticing the layup line for the Nets first home preseason game which I called and I was like, oh, man, like, you know, you you have some people so excited about Kyrie, KD, like, and like, there's none of that energy. And so that feels a little weird. Um, but when you just like glue your eyes to the action, it, it becomes easier to digest uh, without, you know, without feeling, you know, too disoriented. But, you know, I, I would say the biggest difficulties are, you know, the feeling of being a team on the road, you know, like there is a camaraderie that you grow with, with your broadcast mates uh, that we don't have. And then also the little, you know, snippets you gather by being part of that NBA fraternity from, you know, traveling with a team in the case of the Nets or if I'm doing a national game, you know, just being in person around the coaches, like those little things are the things I think I feel the most. Well, anything you're missing, I'm sure will be made up for by getting to call uh, games for, for this team and some of the other games you'll get to call. Ryan, I really appreciate you joining us today, man. Thanks as always. Thank you. No problem, guys. No problem. I'm pumped that you guys are doing this podcast. I know Net fans are starved for Net content, and I know this pod is going to be exactly what they need. So thank you guys for having me. Joining us now on Full Court on Flatbush is Brooklyn Nets beat writer for the New York Post, Brian Lewis. You can follow Brian on Twitter at NYPost underscore Lewis and read his Nets coverage in the post and at nypost.com. Now, Brian, obviously you, you follow the team and are a member of the media, right? And, and this team and the media have had a little bit of a relationship, particularly its stars. You're the media that follows them most closely. So uh, how have you found them to to be uh, to deal with, particularly, uh, obviously, KD and Kyrie? KD, KD is a little bit more, I don't know, taciturn. He's a little bit, he's not a huge talker. Uh, he's not generally rude or curt with it. He's just a man of few words, uh, unless you're talking basketball. Now, if you just want to talk hoops 
and ask about a play or ask about a scheme or that kind of stuff. He's got a photographic memory and he'll talk for hours about that. He gets irritated when you want to talk about anything other than basketball. <laughs> so he's a, he's a pure gym rat. That's what he is. He also does remember every single thing that everybody writes or says or tweets or podcasts. He may claim he doesn't, <laughs> but he does. <laughs> Kyrie's a little different. Kyrie, I don't know that Kyrie particularly separates me from the Daily News or Newsday or SI or whatever. We're them. <laughs> To Kyrie, you understand? Um, Kyrie may be a little different. I understand that because he has extreme respect for anybody that played, especially those that played at a high level. But the rest of us, I don't think he separates it. And Kyrie sometimes gets in his feelings and he just doesn't want to talk to us. But when he does, he's engaging. He's engaging. He's intelligent. He has very thoughtful things to say until he gets in his feelings again and may not want to talk to us. <laughs> but like I said, when we ha when he has talked to us, he's been great to deal with. Hey, Brian, Kerry Kittles here. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on on the uh, on, on the Spencer Dinwiddie injury and, and, and that affects with the team uh, moving forward? Obviously, he's a big piece of what they have with his versatility on offense. I mean, my goodness, the guy can score at all three levels. And then now the other role players having to shift into more um, prominent roles on the team, in particular, just the emergence of TLC and what you've seen from him and heard about with, with the team. As good as Spencer was last year when he averaged basically 20 and seven in a year where they didn't have KD at all and didn't have much of Kyrie. I think his loss is underrated by fans. When you look, I mean, both in the eye test and in the analytics, when you look at the analytics and all the on off stats, he's been their third most effective player this year. And it's not even close. Um, when you look at what they've been with him on the court and what they've been with him off the court, then when you look at the eye test, even more what he does on offense, you're talking about a long athletic, 6'6 guy on defense who's switchable. And they were doing a lot more switching this year than they did last year under Kenny. And he also offered you a chance to have a backup point guard if needed. His impact or losing him, I think that impact is going to be underrated by a lot of fans. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, but after you see it for two or three weeks, then I think they'll understand how big of a loss this is. And I'm not even getting into the fact that potentially he would have had to have been a part of any James Harden trade. I'm not even getting into that. I'm saying just what he is on the court. I think people will begin to see how bad, how big of a loss that was. One thing I've seen people talk about, the, the fans, is the, the center position. And DeAndre mm -hmm. Jordan, obviously the starting center. Jared Allen's played really well. I've been impressed by his, his energy level. But it feels like uh, some fans, in, in an effort to uh, prop up what Allen's done, have been tearing Jordan down a little bit. What do you make of that center position and how Steve Nash has allocated the minutes so far? I don't have a problem with how he's allocated the minutes. I would have more of a problem if he were allocating the minutes, say, 30 to DJ and 16 to Allen and two to Jeff Green. Then I would have a problem. But Allen has been playing more minutes, which I think is justifiable because I think he has been a little bit better. So I, I don't have a problem with the way the minutes are allocated. I think what happens is DJ is starting. And that has people, you know, feeling some kind of way about it because they feel that Allen is a better player. Allen is part of the future and Allen should be starting. What Steve Nash has done and he has consistently said is don't get worked up over who starts. This is going to be a tandem effort, a team effort. Some days this guy's going to start. Some days that guy's going to start. Look at the minutes. 
And the minutes have primarily gone to Allen, and I think that's justifiable. Along along those lines, though, what do you say about the small ball lineups? Right, I know Mike D'Antone, that's sort of been his thing sure. as a coach, and I'm sure Steve Nash would love to play faster if they can. And, you know, I've seen the Nets kind of try to do that with some smaller lineups without having Allen or Jordan in those in the lineup. What are your thoughts on that? It's funny you ask, because when you look at the center position, and I was mentioning, hey, 30 to DJ and 16 and then two to Jeff Green, I think as the season goes on, or check that, when the postseason rolls around, I think DJ will lose some minutes to Jared Allen. I think he's going to lose a lot of minutes to Jeff Green. Because now, you know, the way the NBA is now, you people are going to be playing five out. People are going to be trying to put five shooters, or they're going to be trying to make you switch out on the perimeter. As strong as DJ is, as explosive as he is going vertically, problem is he can't move laterally. You can't ask him to switch on anybody you can't ask him to be out to step out on the he can't do these things he's not capable of doing them anymore jeff green on the other hand is i don't want to say a poor man's serge Ibaka because that's disrespectful but you get what i'm saying this is a guy who can not only hit a jumper and not only stretch the floor for you but he can actually play defense and rebound and switch i think come playoff time when you're put in those situations and you have to guard people on the other end all of a sudden Jeff Green's, his veteran leadership, his responsibility defensively, the way he moves, all of that is going to be more valuable when you're in the playoffs playing, you know, I don't know, Boston or playing Milwaukee or playing the Sixers. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to see how valuable Jeff Green is. So I love the small ball lineups. I hope they do more of it. Jeff Green played really well at center for the Rockets last year. And then you get the yeah. Uncle Uncle Drew to Uncle Jeff connection going on. <laughs> as far as the, the roster goes overall, uh, how set do you think it is? Uh, are there more additions that you could expect outside of a big blockbuster trade? There's been rumblings about them still being in contact with Jamal Crawford. Yeah, here's the thing. I mean, I would expect... You know, they'll apply for an exception, obviously. Uh, eventually, you have to create a roster spot for that. But I would think, yes, another perimeter player, and they know Jamal. Jamal knows them. Jamal clearly has given every signal that he'd like to be playing and like to be playing here. I think he makes perfect sense. He can play on the ball. He can play off the ball. Again, veteran leadership. I think that makes perfect sense. Well, if it makes uh, perfect sense, maybe it will happen for the Brooklyn Nets. And you certainly made a lot of sense, Brian. Appreciate you joining us here on Full Court on Flatbush. Oh, no problem. Anytime. The next stop is Barclays Center. Flatbush Avenue. That wraps up episode two of the Kevin Garnett edition of Full Court on Flatbush, our Brooklyn Nets podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake Brown and Sarah McCrory for producing the show. Subscribe to Full Court on Flatbush on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. For Kerry Kittles, I'm Robin Lundberg. We'll return next Wednesday and every Wednesday during the season. See you all in 2021. Have a happy new year and stay safe.